Hello, everyone. Welcome to Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. So there is this long-standing debate (laughs) that probably goes all the way back to the beginning of time, even more specifically for the purposes of the podcast, certainly we could say to the beginning of what we now know to be psychological counseling or psychotherapy. It's broader than simply talk therapy. It includes, as psychology did initially, psychiatry. Uh, More the medical side of it as much as then the talk therapy, as we would call it, dimension of treatment, care, mental health care, behavioral health care, psychological counseling. Uh, I myself am not a medical doctor. I would have to rely upon an MD to prescribe medications. Not many medical doctors do the talk therapy, which makes for a nice synergistic relationship between someone such as myself, who has my doctorate in psychological counseling, or counseling psychology, and they have their MD in psychiatry as a specialty. Here's the, here's the debate, though. Is it better to feel the pain or not? Is it better to eliminate the pain or is it better to instrumentally to getting to a place of health? (laughs) Careful how I say this. We don't want you to feel too much pain, but pain is a normal facet of life. Our experience of life. It is normal to feel pain. Pain is adaptive. It lets you know that there's something that is harming you. Possibly it is the basis for all motives to change, uh, including not only the physical, but the psychological. Not only what might then be causing you physical distress, either self-induced or Circumstantial, situational, environmental, from someplace, somewhere else, some other, but also those things that as much someone else might inflict that would be painful or the environment might in that way create or cause, affect some degree of pain, elimination of that as even so threat. Or maybe it's (laughs) more in your own head psychologically speaking and can we just treat the pain no you have to make adjustments pain reduction is I think a legitimate end symptom relief is a legitimate end to all behavioral health care psychiatry medications might do it maybe more quickly, might and maybe, emphasis, uh, possibly so, though there may be side effects. There's no, as we would have called it in the past, magic bullet that's going to go specifically to a particular part of the brain, as with medications that's going to take care of your pain and then all of the associated problems that go with it. Most of the pains, again, as would be self-inflicted, are pains that go along with personality, maladaptive coping, 
dysfunctional <laughs> childhoods, self-esteem issues, relationship issues, all of that as within the human construct, the identity. <laughs> and there's no, certainly, magic bullet for that. You can't just wake up one morning and be a completely different person. But uh, once again, if you're too bogged down in pain, going back once again to the other side of it, you may not have the motive, the energy on a physical basis to tackle all of that. There is again a synergistic relationship between the physiology and the psychology. And as much. Then pain reduction or elimination is a sign of improvement. It isn't going to be sustainable. It's just not the way it is. Actually, primary drives are all predicate. Uh, Food. (laughs) I need food. Sleep. Those type of drives. Um, They're all predicate upon pain. So you can't eliminate it. You can eat, you can sleep, and in the moment that you might have, once you've gotten your fill of either, there's a sense of satisfaction. But as soon as you're satisfied, you begin to become dissatisfied, hungry again, needing of sleep again. It's just the way the body works. It's the chemical imbalance principle, which is more normal than it is abnormal. Psychology Today, November, December, 2023. Do you feel empty and numb? Understanding Emotional Disconnection by Amy Lowe. The world around me feels unreal. I am watching life go by without being in it. I don't know what I am feeling or cannot find the words for it. I feel disconnected from my body. Emotional numbness is a kind of internal emptiness that permeates the entire being and strips a person of joy and vitality. There is a loss of control over thoughts or actions. This numbness finds its origins in a part of our personal history that is too painful to reach. It is in our nature to defend against pain. Once we've experienced a physically or emotionally painful situation, such as being betrayed, we will defend against it. We don't want it to happen again. In the face of traumatic physical, emotional, or relational experiences, we have three responses, fight, flight, or freeze. If disconnecting from others to avoid getting hurt is fleeing, the numbing our emotions may be freezing. When faced with extreme situations such as rejection, abandonment, or shame, the body and psyche go into a numbing mode as part of that freezing response. This comes from our instinct to survive the most difficult circumstances. When things overwhelm us, disconnecting might be the only way to preserve our sanity or even our lives. However, this protective reflex sometimes remains for much longer after the actual danger has passed. Emotional numbing tends not to be a conscious choice. You may not even be aware of the pattern building 
until after it becomes your normal way of functioning. Initially, initially, emotional disconnection offers a sense of pseudo-equanimity, a steady pleasantness that allows you to put up a socially acceptable persona. This protective shield seems useful at first. You will feel that the pain has gone away and that you can get on with your life. Although the pattern started as a way of protecting you, it can eventually morph into your hiding from yourself or denying your needs altogether. It is best to approach your numbness with compassion. Get in touch with yourself. Don't bypass or suppress your sadness. Move closer to it and digest it. Your emotional numbness does not have to run the show. If you find yourself using the shield when you feel numb, just being aware of this pattern can help. Your numbness will no longer be an unconscious destructive force. Emmy Lowe holds masters in mental health and in Buddhist studies. She's the author of Emotional Sensitivity and Intensity. Do you feel empty and numb understanding emotional disconnection? All right, so Emilo has a master's in mental health, which means that she's more likely not a medical doctor, more likely than not to be so driven or directed by the medical model, which is what medical doctors learn in medical school. And with that, then, the physiology that underlies all human life. You cannot operate psychologically if you're not operating physically. If you're not alive, you're not going to have all the psychological features. The answer, however, is not to kill yourself to eliminate the symptom, but sometimes dying to yourself can be helpful. If what that means is that it's strategic, there's again no magic bullet, possibly so you have to co-op, the cooperation being that with the physiology, and as I tried to explain in the intro on today's podcast, for me there's a synergistic relationship because I am not a medical doctor, I do not write prescriptions, I do not have what we call prescriptive authority. I do the psychotherapy, the psychological counseling, otherwise known as the talk therapy, which I would believe Emmy Lowe may also do, based on what we do know about Emmy. But what I would end up doing is coordinating with the psychiatrist, the medical doctor, to assist me strategically initiating some form of symptom relief without having to kill you while I do the work. (laughs) Relieve enough of the pain to re-engage some motive or energy, get you out of fight or flight to the place where we can begin to use higher cortical functions, more pensive, more logical, reasoned, hypothetical model, again, of reasoning applied so we can figure out what's causing the pain, how to cope with the pain, 
make adaptive changes as the situations and circumstances of your life would dictate such. They represent stress, the situation, circumstances, the demand itself. But depending on you, who you are as a person, what coping styles have gotten into your personality that have become habitual, Emmy speaks to those. Some people choose avoidance and checking out, fight or flight, as their answer. They never maybe get beyond learning the fight or flight to learning how to apply higher cognitive functioning, rational behavioral therapy, RBT, cognitive behavioral therapy principles to their life. They don't understand the hypothetical model because they're so easily triggered and possibly, as Emmy spoke to, there's a trauma dimension, intense extreme pain, which does tend to cause you not only fight or flight, reactions, kill it, run away from it, but sometimes deer in the headlight reactions, freeze up. But it should not be a chosen strategy because you're never really going to resolve the problem. That takes courage. It takes support. Once again, it takes some sense of control over the pain, some symptom relief. If you're so depressed, you have no energy, you're despondent, you're hopeless, you feel helpless, an antidepressant medication as prescribed by a psychiatrist that would address specifically the extremes of chemical imbalance, the lack of equilibrium in your system, which is really satiation. I mentioned that earlier with the hunger and sleep analogy. You need some assistance getting to a place logistically where the body's cooperating, turning off the fight or flight enough to think through things, sympathetic nervous system, parasympathetic nervous system, the operation of the parasympathetic requires the sympathetic to be turned off, the sympathetic being fight or flight in in this article, in this case that we're reading the article we're reading today, as with Case, uh, uh, freezing even. But the highest of thoughts, where we really get the most traction in talk therapy, is when we engage the parasympathetic nervous system, shut off the sympathetic at least enough to have predominant parasympathetic operations, dopamine, serotonin, GABA, oxytocin, all kick in, and we can think more clearly. We can problem solve better. We can look at the contingencies, maybe their childhood ones that have somehow gotten lost because no one's really been there to either assist in the right sort of way or you've never really had the moment or time to stop for that moment or time to reflect sufficiently in that moment and time on who you've become and more in a more directed, once again, decided sort of way, set a course to make some modifications and changes. Psychological counseling, psychotherapy, talk therapy helps and assists. Symptom relief doesn't 
oftentimes actually symptom relief can do just the opposite. If you're starting to feel better, oh wow, I'm feeling better. I really don't need to get into all of those thoughts because thinking about them does tend to trigger, at least initially, a bit more pain. But also, as Emmy pointed out, if you work through the pain instrumentally, by working through the pain, not only do you determine what is causing it, maybe modifications or adjustments to eliminate then some of that pain, adaptively so to address the immediate psychological need or physical need, physical psychological needs going on at the time, but it could become part of your personality to be more adaptive, to do just that rather than avoidance and running away. So which is better? To feel the pain or not? To get so much symptom relief that it feeds into what may be already a style of addressing pain or problems or stress that would then be the source of that distress that painful experience by simply running away or in this case freezing or in this case I thought the article did not suggest I thought no, there's some element even of derealization depersonalization disassociation that always goes with trauma but kind of all of us have that numb feeling when we're in shock when something awful has happened and We really don't know what to do about it. We just curl up in a little ball and emotionally, sometimes more literally, physically, and just want to escape it. So having said that, then, the combo, the co-op of the psychiatry and the psychological counseling should be fairly evident, the common sense aspects of that. But what about this thing called ketamine therapy? (laughs) And even so, where does that come from in context of our conversation today on the podcast? Ketamine now is being seen as a possible answer to depression. And with that then, quite accidentally, ketamine can only be prescribed in certain states by, legally, by psychiatrists. And with that, (laughs) long-standing sort of debate between talk therapy and psychiatry in the sense of the physiology and the psychological, how much pain symptom pain reduction is going to help How much is going to harm if it's going to feed into denial, disassociation, derealization, keep you in a constant state of avoidance, running, freezing up, curling up in an emotional ball, and not really working on any of it to the end of understanding what causes it, adaptively adjusting your life so that not only do you have pain (laughs) reduction in an immediate sense, but you might then eliminate risk of future pain. Your quality of life also could vastly improve. Ketamine is a dissociative anesthetic that is thought to improve the brain's neuroplasticity. 
and was legalized for therapeutic benefits. Ketamine has also been found effective in combating treatment-resistant depression, PTSD, and anxiety. Ketamine is not 100% effective and is usually rather expensive, at least several hundred dollars a session. Ketamine therapy is as much, if not more, about the therapy than it is about the ketamine. My reference is Devon Fry. Should you try ketamine therapy, Psychology Today, it's a post posted August 16, 2021. So, ketamine can be useful. It was initially an anesthetic. I'm probably going to do a separate independent podcast just on ketamine alone. It's intriguing. It's interesting. It's suggestive of a new direction we're taking in terms of the physiology, psychology, sort of continuum when it comes to care, behavioral health care. But it was an anesthetic, which is really then something that you use to eliminate pain when it comes to procedures, medical procedures, uh, and those that might be either modestly, moderately, or intensely painful, it allows you to then conduct the surgery and then reduce so much the distress of the pain that the individual can tolerate it with a bit of conscious awareness, I suppose. And with that then, the idea at least the conscious awareness, that ketamine could possibly help with psychological pains as much as physical pains in that same way. It is categorized as a psychotic hallucinogen because it has psychotic effects. It also promotes depersonalization, disassociation, and derealization. And with that then, as I teased a bit, earlier on in the podcast as well. You don't want to kill the person to eliminate the pain, but it does get into the territory of ego death, which means that all the things psychologically, internally, that either are directly contributory to your distress, your experience of pain, remembering that it's not only the physiology that supports the psychology, but the psychology can change the physiology. And with that, we can have psychosomatic complaints, physical complaints that are accompanying psychological distress. And for certain individuals, they may not register it in any psychological sort of way, type of way, and maybe complain mostly in physical terms. We call that conversion disorder and one of its most extreme variations, psychosomatic disorders, somatoform disorders. But ketamine could eliminate the very thing that psychological counseling attempts to do all the resistance that now has become a habit that now has become more than habitual has now become defining, which now becomes personality, which now then is preemptive of you 
being able to do this without the assistance of talk therapy or psychotherapy and makes it you and it more amenable to alteration, adjustment. We don't want to kill you, your identity that is, just to eliminate the pain, but we might need to remove certain parts, the psychological construct that goes into, or the identity, or that does go into the identity, but those components that make up as in psychological construct, identity, we may want to strategically make some alterations or adjustments. The article on ketamine points that out. But it points it out through a psychological counseling perspective, a psychotherapy perspective, more than it does simply a medical one. And ketamine, unfortunately, is a drug with high risk of abuse because it does numb you, because it does leave you feeling empty, because it does feed into this disassociation, depersonalization, derealization, because it does, for those who have chosen a lifestyle, as with habit of addressing stress and associated pains, of just disconnecting and freezing up, curling up into an emotional ball, never then really easily approaching any semblance of recognition, awareness, possibly even avoiding anything that seemingly triggers, including psychological counseling, a re-experiencing of the trauma that goes along with the disassociation, avoiding psychological counseling altogether, psychotherapy altogether, or the moment that you become close to uh, the pain in some psychotherapeutic context, talk therapy, dimension, the triggering of a disassociative or dissociative episode of disconnection. That goes into, talking of personalities, dissociative identity disturbance, which formerly was known as multiple personality disorder, disassociation with post-traumatic stress disorder as a way of coping but when you disassociate, what you begin to discover, as even with a milder version of, I think, disassociation or dissociation, which is just denial, I stated, mentioned that in passing just a moment ago, stated that some individuals prefer denial, avoidance. And then the sympathetic nervous system, the fight or flight or freezing, you just don't get the parasympathetic operations. You just don't get the higher cortical functions. You just don't get to enter into hypothetical reasoning where the magnificence of talk therapy really shows itself more advantageous, elegant, eloquent, efficacious. All those adjectives that describe a more perfect answer. You can't just take the symptom away. You have to have at least enough motive. And you can't then take ketamine to then facilitate that 
or you're going to run even greater risk of never coming out of the ball. Emotional ball. And the psychiatrist should understand that. Psychiatry, psychology began with that notion that not only was it a medical condition, but the earliest of psychologists were psychiatrists. They could prescribe medication and do the talk therapy and insisted that that would be the only, the best way to really fully resolving the problems. But we've moved quite a bit away from that, if only because, once more, psychiatry tends to focus more on medical symptom relief, medication, directed or derived symptom relief, whereas this talk therapy is then left to all the other stuff, personality changes, psychological counseling, coping skill development, relationships, psychosocial dimensions, overcoming traumas. I'm not saying I don't appreciate the fact that there's a lot of credibility and respect that goes along with that from the medical profession to leave that to persons such as myself. But I also recognize, though, someone seeking assistance without the talk therapy, ketamine is probably not a good answer. And that's what that article that I read a moment ago from Psychology Today was trying to speak to. That in and of itself, ketamine therapy, as much if not more, should be, must be about the therapy than it is about the ketamine that was the article. This is me now speaking. Because really, that's where the real growth takes place. That's where the validation, that's where efficacy, that sense of efficacy, perfection, completion, that sense of strength, higher power sort of principle, it only comes forth from within you. The the ketamine (laughs) helps to possibly logistically make you more amenable to the changes. It could be in that anesthetic sort of way used as total pain reduction. And then marginally the disassociation is kind of along that line. But that's where all the potential for abuse comes in. And that's why, again, it's not legal in all states. And with that then... Only those who are qualified to write that script and understand the full impact physically on the body from a medical standpoint, medical model standpoint, physiology standpoint, psychiatry standpoint, should be prescribing it. But if they're not including the talk therapy or are seeing it then or the patient erroneously presumes that because they're not going to get the talk therapy from the psychiatrist, that that's enough. They don't have to do the talk therapy. Which is, again, one of those age-old sort of problems. People start feeling better, and they don't want to talk about the problems because they don't want to go through the pain. People go to their psychiatrist unless there's a good working relationship and appreciation of the model 
how the two rightly fit together, medication and talk therapy, they may just avoid the psychotherapist altogether. Oh, my, my doctor will just write a script. I'll just get an antidepressant and I'll feel better. I'll get an anti-anxiety medication and I'll feel better. Now, currently, with the current trends, with as potent than psychoactive potency as measured psychoactively, available, becoming available, shrooms are the same way. It's psychedelic as well. It's got the ego death principle. We've spoken of that on Word, the podcast previously. But ketamine is along that same line. You can't avoid the pain. Pain is not evil. Psychotherapists are not evil. Psychological counselors. And there's no magic bullet. Symptom relief is not correction, growth, adapting, You can say, I don't want to do any of that. And that certainly is your choice. But I would think, ethically speaking, most psychiatrists, understanding how this is rightly to be fitted together, will say, if you should say that to them, no, you need to do the psychotherapy as well. You need to do the psychological counseling. We'll assist on the psychiatry side of it to help you logistically to be able to better do that. But the real work is in adapting, coping, adjusting, growing, maturing, developing, using highest order of thought. Not without emotions, not without some measure of excitement, but not that it would lead or predominate. Lest you freeze up, lest you curl up into a little ball. Psychology today... November, December 2023, do you feel empty and numb? Emmy Lowe, understanding emotional disconnection. It is quite adaptive, but you don't want to live there. Should you want to reach out to me, us, you can contact me at drmdclay at thewordhouse.com. You can call 304-523-WORD-9673. We're on Facebook at The Word House. We're on YouTube at The Word House. And of course, you can find us online at thewordhouse.com or on the web at thewordhouse.com. And you can always come back and catch our next podcast. What we do on the podcast is as much intentioned to the same end of informing and providing as current and palatable, (laughs) easily understood presentation of imminent research in the field of psychology and psychological counseling, psychology today as the basis for that. It's all intention to be a resource or serve as resources to you. If you need the additional assistance, then reach out to us, me, at those uh, points of contact I mentioned a moment ago. You can go to the Psychology Today website, and there's a directory also of providers, geographical, (laughs) virtual, whichever way you want to go with it. You'll find some good folks there that I know are vetted and can help. But as much those thoughts are in mind, your mind, 
I would want to invite you back, regardless of what you choose to do with us as resource, to our next edition of Word with Dr. Michael David Clay. Until we get a chance to meet again, I want to wish you the best of good mind health, mental health, behavioral health, and I sincerely want to say thanks.